As astronomers peer ever deeper into space, they are in a very real sense looking back in time. If you look back 10 billion light years, you're looking at galaxies as they were 10 billion years ago. These are the galaxies that interest Professor Andy Harris. He looks forward to using the GBT to study these objects, but first, he needs to build a new instrument to help him with his research. He calls his new instrument a Z-machine. We'll talk with him today about his work as an instrument builder and what he hopes to accomplish with his Z-machine. And of course, we'll spend a few minutes with our resident amateur astronomer, Bob Anderson. Welcome to the February edition of Mountain Radio Astronomy. I'm Sue Ann Heatherly. Joining us for our February broadcast is Dr. Andy Harris, and he is a professor at the University of Maryland. And he's visiting us in Green Bank. We'll get to that in a little bit, but thanks so much for being with us. Well, thank you very much. Okay, Andy, um, I like to ask folks first uh, how they came to be an astronomer. What got you interested in astronomy? Um, it's always hard to say what, what gets you interested in something the first time. I, if we had to pick one time, it would probably be that my grandmother gave me a little tiny telescope when I was in high school. And uh, I really enjoyed looking at the sky with it. And uh, so that was, that was the beginning of my interest in astronomy. Mm -hmm. And as I went on and studied more and more, I kept discovered that I kind of kept coming back to astronomy, although I did it in a very, a very indirect way. And it was just the thing that I found very interesting. It has many aspects to it. Mm -hmm. And all of the aspects I find, I find wonderful and fun to explore. Where did you grow up? Where did you uh, use your little telescope that your grandmother gave you? I grew up just north of San Francisco, and uh, so the sky was pretty bright, but mm -hmm. you could still see a lot of stars, and I wasn't right in a city. It was just north of the city, and so if I went up the street a little bit and got out from under the street lights and out from the neighbor's porch lights, then I could see the sky pretty well. And where did you go to school? Did you major in astronomy when you were uh, first starting out in college? No, I, I didn't. I started as an engineer, an electrical engineer, and uh, so I went to college at the University of California at Davis, and they had a very nice small observatory there, probably still do, and so I spent a lot of many, many nights uh, standing out there, and what we, my friends and I used to do was we would just try star hopping. You would go from one star to a little galaxy, and so we were working our way through all the Messier objects we could see. And, finding various stars and looking at double stars and the things that a, an amateur astronomer normally does. And I was also very interested in taking pictures uh, through the telescope, so I spent a lot of time on that, mm -hmm. trying different kinds of film and uh, soaking the film in ammonia, which is a very unpleasant experience because no you kidding. have to breathe a lot of ammonia and uh, things of that sort. So. Cool. So you made images of the sky. Were you successful? I was successful, yeah. They were um, not professional images by any means, but, but I certainly enjoyed them. They were my, my own little thing, and I was able to make some of them better than I could earlier. So there was also, I also was able to experiment with different things, which is something I love. Yes, and both of these hobbies that you mentioned as an undergraduate, star hopping to learn how to find an object in the sky by going from one star to the next, you don't have to do that anymore because amateur telescopes have little computers that will do that for you. And number two, they have little computers that you hook to the back of your telescope and you collect your, your images on a, on a chip now, don't you? That you do. 
So it's but it's still different. worthwhile. And I have a I have a funny story about that that goes back to when I was an undergraduate. But I'd, I'd gotten involved with a, a research group at UC Berkeley. And I was at the 120-inch telescope at Lick Observatory. And we were trying to detect a very bright star in the infrared. I was helping some people out, um, just lifting boxes mostly. Um, but they were trying to detect this bright star in the infrared because they couldn't tell whether their system was working or not. And uh, they couldn't detect the star they were looking for, which is very bright. And so at some stage, I was wandering around. I had nothing to do. I didn't know anything about anything. I was wandering around and looked out along the side of the telescope and noticed that we were just looking at the wrong part of the sky. <laughs> There'd been a simple misunderstanding between the telescope operator and the observer. But there is actually a good purpose to knowing what's in the sky, even with all of the wonderful computers, because the telescope was pointing in exactly the wrong place, not an arc second away from the, where the telescope operator wanted it to point, but that wasn't where it was supposed to be pointing. <laughs> yeah, that is good. That is good, and at least in optical astronomy, you can go outside and take a look. Right. Uh, when the astronomers first detected radio waves from Jupiter, they had no idea it was Jupiter until somebody went outside and happened to look up and say, what is that? Is what that is a that? planet? Right, right. Yeah, so... so. So tell us what your, uh, what your research interests are now, now that you've made it all the way to school and you're a, an astronomer. What do you like to study? Well, a, a number of things. What, what my, my specialty is building instruments to do radio astronomy. And I'm very interested in spectroscopy, which is the study of light uh, to find out about remote objects. And a, a good analogy for spectroscopy is you, everybody, I think, has seen different color street lights. So some are blue and some are orange. And if you went and looked at the packages that the bulbs for the street lights came in, you'd find out that the blue ones had mercury in them and the orange ones had sodium in them. And once you knew that, you could then work out just by eye, just by looking at the color of the light, what the element inside the light bulb was. And for astronomy, that's obviously a very important thing to be able to do because the sources are so far away that we can't go measure them with a chemistry set. We have to analyze the light that comes back, look carefully at the color of the light that comes back, and see what elements are in the source. And uh, I'll talk in a minute about how we can also measure the, the motions within the source using, using this technique. And this study of light is called spectroscopy. And what I do is I build instruments spectrometers that analyze radio waves because light that you see with your eyes is only a small fraction of the light that actually hits the earth um, so there's infrared radiation which is just very long wavelength light it's it's just uh, just past the red and after infrared comes the millimeter waves and after the millimeter wave comes longer wavelength still the radio waves like the ones we detect here in green bank and even longer waves that you can only detect in space. And on the other side of light, past blue, past purple, you get to the ultraviolet x-rays and gamma rays. And so astronomers now have to study all of these wavelengths to understand the universe. And I work mostly in radio astronomy and again here looking at building instruments that can analyze, carefully analyze the, the light that comes from radio sources. So what we're, we're what we're looking for here 
at, in Green Bank and, and have looked for in other places is we look at molecules that are in interstellar space. And when you look at inter interstellar space, you see stars, of course, but you also see regions where there aren't any stars. And for a long time, people were puzzled by this because they thought, well, maybe there just aren't stars there. But we know, know now that's not right. These are regions in the sky that have big clouds of mostly dust, sort of like very fine sand, and also molecules. The, those are atoms, groups of atoms that are put together. So one atom is an atom by itself. If you stick two atoms together, you get a molecule. If you stick three or four atoms together, you get a bigger molecule. Well, you were talking about working with ammonia before. That that's is a, a good example. That's a classic <laughs> molecule. That is one nitrogen and three hydrogens, or water is another good one, right? H2O, one, one, uh, one oxygen and two hydrogens. So we look at carbon monoxide in interstellar space, and we can see particular wavelengths, carbon monoxide radiates at particular wavelengths, and we know exactly what those wavelengths should be. And by comparing the wavelength that we see the emission from the ground, we know how fast the source is moving toward or away from us. Okay, we're going to have to dig into that just a little bit, I think. Okay, so tell us at what wavelength carbon monoxide radiates first. Well, it radiates at a bunch of wavelengths, but the one that many people study is at 2.6 millimeters wavelength. Okay, so folks, if you draw, start to get out your pencil and paper and draw a little wave oscillating up and down and up and down the distance between one peak and the next one for carbon monoxide would be 2.6 millimeters. That's really tiny. It's pretty small. It's about an eighth of an inch. A little bit, little bit uh, shorter than that, and uh, so we we can do that with with uh, millimeter wave telescopes on high mountains. But uh, what we're doing here in Green Bank is we're looking at that wavelength, but from sources that are moving away from us so fast that the wavelength has been stretched out so that it shows up at wavelengths around a centimeter, about ten times longer. And those are what we'll be able to detect with the 100-meter telescope here. Okay, so by looking at how much the waves are stretched from their original wavelength of 2.6 millimeters, sometimes they get stretched to the point that the wavelength is a centimeter or so. Right, right. And, and so, so this, these galaxies are, or objects are far away. They're far away, okay. that's right. And the, the reason we know that is that this stretch is something that everybody's kind of used to. If you listen to race cars go by, you can hear the pitch drop very quickly, for instance. You sort of get this, and you can hear it. It's very, very high pitch, and then it drops to a low pitch suddenly, just as the race car goes past. And that, in fact, is how the police use uh, radar guns and so on to find out how fast people are going. Mm -hmm. And we can do the same thing with, with the molecules that are, that are in these galaxies that are far away. And the reason the galaxies are moving so far, so fast, is because they're very distant. They're, they're galaxies that formed very early in the age of the, in the life of the universe. So the universe expanded very suddenly, uh, about 13, starting about 13.7 billion years ago. And when we look back at these, at the objects that formed early in the age of the universe, they seem to us to be moving very uh, uh, away from us very rapidly. Can you give us a number? 
Well, these these would be moving away from us at. Um, oh, let's see. Uh, well, it, <laughs> I, I, put, can, I put the astronomer on the spot. I can. Folks. Well, the, the problem is we don't usually think in yeah. those terms. For something that's that far away, we usually think of what we call the redshift, which is this change in wavelength. I know. And so these are galaxies that are red, at a redshift of about two and a half, which means that their wavelength has changed by about a fact by a factor of two and a half, one two and a half. Mm -hmm. And these objects are about a billion years old, or about twelve billion years old from our point of view. They formed at about a billion years after the Big Bang. And let's see, how fast are they moving? That's sort of a funny question because it mixes cosmology. Right. The way the universe is expanding with our with our ideas about classical physics, which is how the how the wavelengths shift from from speed. But even parts in our galaxy, uh, if you can look at the redshift of clumps of gas in our galaxy or something, that these clumps of gas are moving several oh. hundred kilometers per second. Oh, they're moving like crazy. Yes, they're moving. So you're talking about. Oh, this is an appearance of a velocity that's way bigger than that's, that. That's even. much, much bigger. It's a good fraction of the speed of light. Mm -hmm. I just don't know the number off the top of yeah. my head. So they're moving very fast. And yeah, to, to give you an idea, inside the galaxy, we can get easily get velocities of, as you said, about 100 kilometers per second, which is about 60,000 miles per hour. Wow. So it's very, very fast. But anyway, we're, we're able to, to study these galaxies with the Green Bank Telescope. And to do that, we're building a spectrometer that will cover a very large bandwidth so we can analyze a, a big chunk of light. Uh, because we don't know exactly how fast these galaxies are moving away from us. And so the problem we have is we have to find these, these little bits of light coming from carbon monoxide uh, that's at some speed that we don't quite know. So we have to be able to search over a very, very wide range of, of, of frequencies. And so we're building a spectrometer that's got a bandwidth that's much larger than any spectrometer that we've built so far to do just this project, to, to study these early galaxies and see what it is that makes these galaxies so massive so early in the in the history of the universe. So According to what you know now, um, not what you hope to find out once you study them with this new instrument, but are galaxies from that epoch in the evolution of the universe different than the Milky Way or different than galaxies that are near to us? Well, they, they must be somewhat different, but the galaxies that are around now came from those galaxies. We're just seeing them as they we're seeing big galaxies the way they were 12 billion years ago, but those galaxies still exist. What we do know about the galaxies that we want to study in particular with the, with the Green Bank Telescope is that they are galaxies where stars are forming incredibly fast. So there's a huge amount of star formation in these galaxies. All, the, all of the big clouds of atoms are turning into stars because a star, as as we understand now, a star is, is mostly hydrogen, about 25% helium, and a little tiny bit of everything else. So a star looks very much like the clouds of gas that you would find in between the stars. And for whatever reason, these galaxies are able to convert the big clouds of gas that formed early in the history of the universe, they're able to convert those clouds of gas into stars very efficiently.
And when they do that, they make not only stars, which is also which is always interesting, but the stars themselves in the cores of the stars are able to form heavier elements through fusion. So we're also looking at how the elements that we care about a lot, carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen, have been formed early in the history of the universe. And the reason we care about that so much, of course, is that we're made up of carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen. And so these are the places where these heavier elements that, that are important for life first formed. Great. So then, since you're looking back at a galaxy that's much, much younger then, we'll mm -hmm. put it that way, do you expect to see less, fewer of the uh, heavier, uh, a lesser number of heavier? Of the heavier things? Yeah, we, we do. Um, and in fact, that's what, that's what people find for the most part. And the, the Hubble Space Telescope and some of the very big telescopes on the ground have looked at galaxies in this era and they find little tiny galaxies without very much dust. Dust is, comes from carbon and comes from silicon, so those are both heavy elements. They don't find any dust, really. They find very, very little in the way of, of these heavier elements. And astronomers who look at emission from dust, more or less by accident, discovered these big galaxies, which are very bright, and they have so much dust, which means they've been very efficient at making metals, that you can't even see them at optical wavelengths. And so this is a good example of why, why astronomers look at many different wavelengths now. It's not just looking through an optical telescope with your eye, but we use radio telescopes, we use X-ray telescopes, because we have to discover different objects radiate in very different ways, and we, we can see uh, some things at some wavelengths and not see them at others, and that's part of the puzzle that we're trying to unravel. But when we look at the galaxies that have got so much dust in them, we're also trying to figure out how they're able to form other elements so efficiently. So we know there's a lot of heavy material in them, much more than in the normal than the other galaxies that are around them, which if you looked at optical wavelengths, you would say are, are kind of the normal galaxies. But the puzzle here is how do you make such big galaxies so early in the history of the universe? And so we're trying to understand that as part of our part of our effort. And our colleagues who are who think about the theory of things find these galaxies that are very massive extremely difficult to explain. Although theorists are very flexible, so they're now <laughs> finding a good way to explain them. But this has been a big puzzle. And as we understand that better, we understand better how the universe as a whole formed. But to do that, we really want to understand the mass of these galaxies, mm -hmm. how much material there is. Our own galaxy has got about 10 billion suns worth of mass in it, for instance. And these galaxies seem to have at least that much mass. And so there's a question of how much exactly there is. That we can measure with our spectroscopy. Mm -hmm. um, and then also how that mass collected to, to make these very early massive galaxies and that's something for the theorists to uh, to speculate about and, and amuse us with their various theories. Right. That's a hard one to to figure out, isn't it? Whether it is. galaxies, whether they form out of little clumps or... Right. Okay, that's... Well, the, the thought is that galaxies form out of little clumps, as you said. But if you have lots of little clumps, then you would expect 
the early galaxies should be very small and the late galaxies should be bigger as the little clumps fuse together, bump into each other, then you would expect that you have little galaxies at the beginning and the little galaxies bump into each other and make medium-sized galaxies and the medium-sized galaxies bump into each other and make big galaxies. Mm -hmm. And so the thing that was a big surprise was these are big galaxies in an era when all the other galaxies are little. So how did that happen? Yeah. That's a great puzzle. It is a great puzzle. You've got your work cut out for you. And the first thing that you're doing is building an instrument that will enable you maybe to dig into this a little better. Right, because these galaxies have been very hard to find. And we need to find a lot of them now to understand what's going on. And we want to be able to study them carefully at radio wavelengths and at other wavelengths. And so what we're doing is we're building a, 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 a instrument that will be very efficient at searching for these galaxies and finding, finding more of these very young galaxies. And uh, the, the, the word in, or the letter that astronomers use to denote redshift, the speed at which things are moving away, is Z. And so this is an example of a Z machine, as they're called in the community now. These are instruments on big telescopes that are supposed to go find these high redshift galaxies, these galaxies with Z very different than one. We live in a Z of one universe here. And so these are galaxies at, at much larger Zs. And um, your engineering background as an undergraduate's got to be paying off here. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> no, we... You can do both. You can build what you need and use it. Well, that's the, that's the great joy. That's one of the great joys of astronomy and the great joy of this particular project, which is you think of a problem or you, discover, or you learn of a problem that people can't make much progress on because there's no instrument to build to that, that will do the observations that you need. And so you say, well, what do we need? And you sit down and think about it, and you go ahead and you build something that does it. Mm-hmm. So this is very common sort of thing you do, or people do in everyday life. You, know, you need another room on your house, so you sit down and you figure out how to build another house. Yeah, and but I hire is, a contractor to well, do that for me. those are the people who know how to do it. <laughs> right. And uh, this is just the same. It's just uh, more engineering with an astronomical end to it. Well, what I think is cool about this project is that you're at the University of Maryland, uh, you have students, both mm-hmm. undergraduate and graduate students, and you're undertaking this project to build this instrument at the university, and hopefully, I'm sure you are involving students oh, yeah. in it. Oh, absolutely, so, yes. No, that's the that's one of the main reasons to be at a university, of course, is to is to provide these sorts of sorts of experiences for for the students, and of course, I benefit because. Students are smart, and so they yeah. do good work. Yeah. And uh, so it, it works out very well for everyone. So, in fact, I'm, I'm here visiting. We're having a, a really a, a kind of technical meeting today uh, for this project. And w- I have a, a student and another professor from the University of uh, New Jersey, from Rutgers University, uh, who's also involved in the project. And so it... it we're, we, we all involve students a lot, and the students learn how projects work as well as how astronomy works. Yeah, I think that's really great. So when are you going to have this Z machine installed and pointing the GBT at these distant galaxies? Well, if, if everything goes well, we should be on the telescope this summer.
And uh, we need very good weather uh, to, to be able to use this. So we'll be on the summer for some engineering tests. Right. And then in the winter, when the molecules we don't want, namely all the water in the atmosphere, uh, falls out of the sky because it's, it's so cold, um, then we'll be able to see through the atmosphere very easily. And we'll be able to look back into the, into the, the distant past when the, the galaxies are first forming in the universe. Okay, that means that um, I'll give you two years then, and in two years' time, you, you have to come back on the program and tell us what you're seeing with this instrument that you're building right now. Uh, absolutely. That would be a great, great pleasure. Great. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Next up, we'll visit for a few minutes with Bob Anderson. Welcome back to Mountain Radio Astronomy, Bob. How are you this month? I am very good. Good. Glad to hear it. Tell us what we can look forward to seeing in the night sky. We've had a couple of nights uh, recently that were really good. The moon's getting a little bright by this weekend, by the time of this broadcast. And it's always nice to go out on winter nights and see the moon at full illumination uh, shining on the snow in the woods. So you ought to get out and at least look at that. After the moon leaves the sky towards the end of the month, you can still see Orion uh, standing up very high in the south. And that's a real easy constellation to find. You have to look for the three bright stars uh, in a perfect line. And you'll be able to look at that area with binoculars, and you'll be able to see the Orion Nebula. That's uh, a very easy object to see in the sky that uh, you wouldn't normally notice otherwise. Saturn is also visible uh, if you have a small telescope. It rises uh, after sunset now and is uh, bright in the east, and it's the brightest star over in the eastern horizon. So if you've got a small telescope, get out and look at it. Some of the exciting things that are happening are actually in the morning sky. Venus is getting higher and higher above the sunrise point uh, every day, and it's uh, easy to see the change in its position uh, as we go through the month. Jupiter is also high in the southern sky just before dawn. You can leave your telescope, uh, telescope out overnight and get out and look at it as well and see uh, the belts and the uh, four moons that Galileo found back in the 1600s. Why do you say leave your telescope out at night? Well, it's just convenient. That way you don't have to sit, lay there in bed and think, oh, no, it's cold outside and it takes a long time to set my telescope up. Just leave it out on the front porch or back porch and where you can get to it easily and go out and look. Also, it won't fog up maybe quite so easily. Or Do you have that trouble when you bring a warm telescope from inside to the outside? Uh, not necessarily going that way, but bringing it from the inside to, or from outside to inside you do. It'll mm -hmm. fog up badly on you. Yeah. But leaving it out will allow it to cool off and get close to temperature. I'd throw a towel or a blanket over it mm -hmm. just to keep the dew and the frost off of it. By the end of the month, a new comet that was discovered after the first of the year uh, should be making its way into our skies just above the sunrise point around 5.30 to a quarter of 6. And astronomers don't know yet exactly how bright it's going to get, but uh, you may be able to find it with binoculars by scanning just above the mountains. And uh, if it does become bright enough to see uh, it may be fairly easy to catch. You have to look earlier and earlier as uh, we are headed into spring and into summer. The sun rises earlier. So you have to get out, say, 
around 5.15 or 5.30 even uh, by early March. Well, great. We'll check back with you next month and see if it turns into a, a fun object to look for. Okay. All right. Thanks, Bob. You're welcome. Well, that wraps up this edition of Mountain Radio Astronomy. I'm glad you joined us this morning, and I'll see you again in March.